Welcome to Back from the Abyss. I'm Dr. Craig Heacock. Well, here I am, releasing an episode before Season 4. This is a summer special. And to tell you the truth, I just couldn't wait till fall. It's kind of like when you're an injured athlete and the doctor says, don't run for two months, and you say, that's impossible. It's like not breathing for two days. So... Anyway, to tide you all over, because I figured some of you might be in Back From the Abyss withdrawal, and I would hate for you to have any podcast withdrawal symptoms, we're going to give you a little hit of Back From the Abyss. And this is an interview I did with Laura May Northrup of the Inside Eyes podcast. We did this a few weeks ago in the Bay Area, and I'm just so thrilled to share it with you. But before that, a couple items. Number one, I just want to share a couple really heartwarming things that happened recently. First... A man who is a big fan of the podcast reached out to me and said, hey, the podcast has been so meaningful and special and and an important part of my life. I want to give something back. And he asked me if I have patients who can't afford ketamine treatments. And I said, yeah, I do. So he set up a very generous scholarship fund to help my patients who can't afford ketamine pay for ketamine. And again, that all came from him being such a fan of the podcast, such such a beautiful thing. And then about two or three weeks ago, I got an email, and I get lots of lovely emails from listeners, and I appreciate that. And this woman said, back from the abyss helped her get through one of the most difficult periods of her life last year, and she wondered if she could make a financial contribution, if that would be helpful. And so I emailed her back, and I said, sure, you know, that would be helpful. I this podcast costs me a few thousand dollars out of pocket every year. And so anyway, I gave her my Venmo and then pop in my Venmo comes such a generous donation. I totally teared up and I got her number and we had a lovely talk and wow. I mean, it's one thing to have a listener reach out, you know, with a story of gratitude and um, telling me how the podcast touched their life. And then, but to have someone reach out and offer a donation, especially when we're not even soliciting those, but wow, that was so appreciated and that will help pay for the production and editing costs. So I I appreciate that very much. Another item, I'm going to be speaking in Denver Thursday, August 4th at the NOAC Society gathering at the Mercury Cafe. So any front range listeners in Colorado, come see me. We could chat. And I'm going to get there early. It starts at seven, but I'll try to get there by six, six fifteen. So if any podcast people want to show up early and shoot the ball, I'd love that. My talk is going to be on psychedelics, psychosis, and risk reduction. And now I'm very pleased to share with you my conversation with Laura May Northrup, whose podcast Inside Eyes, I kind of think of as an identical twin separated at birth from Back from the Abyss. I hope you enjoy this. So I'm sitting here with Laura Northrup, and super excited. This has been a long time in the making, and Laura, it's really fun to actually meet you in person. We've been talking by phone, we had a FaceTime chat, we email, and we've been collaborating, and um, finally to sit down with you face-to-face, it's awesome. I know, it's so cool. This has been a long, long awaited moment. And I feel like the pandemic made it even longer. Yeah. So this is it's exciting. We get to do this. Yeah. So uh, listeners probably know that my interest in Laura and her work goes back to the end of season one, because the end of season one, I was wanting to increase the distribution and people said, hey, you got to do a podcast swap. And I, I listened to tons and tons and tons of podcasts. And I thought I can't find one 
that I really want to exchange an episode with that just feels like it has the same kind of heart and soul. And then I found Inside Eyes, and I was in love, and I thought Inside Eyes is like a distant twin of, of Back from the Abyss. And, you know, Laura, listening to it, I thought, this is a product of the heart. Like this, there's no advertising, there's no like, buy my course, or send me money, or it was just you clearly spending hundreds and hundreds of hours making something beautiful. And I remember I, I eagerly did an iTunes review, and I said, you're putting out a gift into the world, something like that. So I reached out to you, I said, please, let's swap episodes. So thank you for making that. I know you've been on a lot of podcasts talking about Inside Eyes, but I had to start with that. Yeah, absolutely. And truly, it is from the heart. And I'm excited to be here and yeah, be in conversation where that's something that's just really of value. Mm -hmm. One of the things I loved most about Inside Eyes was this idea of trauma as a spiritual wound. Yeah. So, you know, so I'm a psychotherapist and I've been in practice for about 10 years and um and prior to becoming a psychotherapist, I've done a lot of activist work and in that work worked a lot with people who have caused sexual harm or who have experienced sexual harm and, and kind of looking at how do we um, how do we deal with sexual harm in community. And one of the things that I've really just sat with over the years is that people will do all this personal work and they there will be this sort of threshold that they don't make it past. And you know, I'm really practical in a lot of ways. So when people are like, oh, you know, we're going to do this and this, and they're kind of talking about all the frills and like, whatever. I'm just like, what's actually happening? What What is it that's actually going to be healing? Because I really make a distinction between coping, soothing, and actually processing. And then from the processing, having so, some kind of like actual change in someone's life. And, and so, you know, with healing from specifically sexual trauma, but all, all trauma, I could say, you know, has this, but sexual trauma, it's people struggle so much to heal. And for me, I'm like looking at all these people trying to heal and I'm looking at what they're doing and I'm thinking, what is stopping it? Like what is making it? So there's this threshold that people don't actually like make it past or over. And I started to see that people were making it somewhere through the use of entheogens and psychedelics. And then I started to get curious, you know, um, and I've been curious about spirituality in a lot of different ways for a long time. I grew up in a very sort of non-spiritual environment. Like it was sort of, uh, you know, if you're believing in God, you're kind of dumb if you believe in God, you know, just like very, very, very anti-religious as a backlash to, you know, um, the abusive powers of, of a lot of religious group groups. So I've always been really curious about spirituality. I saw people going into psychedelic and entheogenic spaces and doing all this healing work. And I just started to wonder, what does sexual violence do to someone spiritually? And in that, I also asked this question, what is spirituality? Like what, what when we say, you know, this particular thing harms the body, what we mean is the physical body gets harmed. But but what does it mean on a spiritual level? And I really think that some of the um, the ways that sexual violence makes people feel so uh, sort of existentially in crisis, questioning of if they should live or die, this is a huge issue for a lot of people with sexual trauma, suicidality. These are really spiritual questions. And then I think I think power, I think being empowered and being embodied is a spiritual issue. And that is something that a lot of people with sexual trauma experience, being highly dissociated. 
And and there's a way that we sort of culturally talk about that in the medical world where we have all these um, these ways that we label that as like a mental health issue, or maybe in the somatic world, we we label that as like a mental physical issue. But but really, these these issues all have spiritual components. So that's kind of where that thinking started to form. And then there's another p- big piece to Inside Eyes that I think is super important, which is really thinking about sexual violence and spirituality from a political lens. And just thinking about what what happens to the individual when an individual person experiences sexual violence. And I mean, what happens to the person who caused that harm too? This is another critical question. And then when we think about the fact that there's an epidemic of sexual violence that is global, like what is happening to us collectively? And then if all these people are experiencing so much disempowerment, what happens to us politically? And I, you know, I talk in the podcast as well about how um, sexual violence is used often in war. And, and to me, there's, there's so many sort of political slash also spiritual implications to that. Mm-hmm. In the Shan episode that I featured on Back from the Abyss, she addresses her spiritual wound, her, her repressed sexual abuse with ayahuasca, which is a psycho-spiritual medicine. I'm wondering if you might speak to what do you think was happening? You've, you know, you've been a few, few years away from making that episode now, and you've done a lot of writing and thinking and um, work. And what's happening, you know, specifically with Shannon in that episode, but in general with, you know, medicine like ayahuasca and trying to get at the spiritual wound of trauma, of sexual trauma? Yeah, well, one thing, I think that the way that we think about what's wrong really impacts how we think about healing. And in some ways, it limits what we can actually see as potentially healing. So what do I think is happening in that episode and her story? But I mean, really, this is just speaking to, you know, any type of work with an entheogen or a psychedelic that's addressing sexual trauma. I think that people are, it's almost beyond words, healing in a way that is uh, not separate, separating out the body, mind, and spirit. So, so these are actually all, in a sense, the same thing. And I think that people are healing in a realm that I would call kind of the mythopoetic realm or like the collective unconscious. They're, they're healing in a realm where things can be symbolic. They're healing in a realm that's really beyond language. And I think in a lot of ways, it's beyond sort of this, um, how do I want to describe this? Like, it's just beyond this very uh, uh, sort of rigid way that we think about what mental health is. So you know, somatically, if you listen to that episode, and, and sometimes I've used that episode to teach a bit about somatic work uh, in conjunction with psychedelic work, um, because, you know, in the episode, Shan says, I was totally still all night. But actually, if you listen, Shan also describes very particular movements that are happening that I really think are that's all somatic processing going on. That's all the body and the nervous system doing the actual healing. And this is when I going back to my comment earlier about the practicality that heals people that does actually transform people to be able to do the somatic processing. So any kind of shaking, any kind of yawning, anything, I think um, in that episode, I think she talks about opening her mouth up. Um, even, right. and even wasn't she yawn kind of yawning up leeches, right? Yeah. Wasn't she sort of like 
Yeah, and these leeches represented horrific sexual trauma yeah. memories. Yeah, yes. Yeah. And so all of that, you know, when you're when it's embedded in a whole narrative, the person who's actually doing the journeying might not be thinking, oh, here I am sort of like shaking this arm and moving this leg. And that's obviously that was my fi- flight response and my flight response when I, or fight and flight response where I wanted to run away or, you know, fight myself to safety. But, you know, looking at it from a somatic lens in the world that uh, we talk about it in somatic psychotherapy, that's the language in this realm that we might use to describe that. But um, and it's different than what people might use in in uh, in an ayahuasca realm, but it's same thing. Like we're translating between two different ways of talking about healing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does seem like with ayahuasca and a lot of the other psychedelics with trauma healing that it operates in metaphor, it operates in image, in and maybe even I want to ask you about this, like like kind of a collective unconscious, you know, or spiritual realm, or there's some there are. S- it seems like people are tapping into something much bigger and transpersonal that then also has these sort of metaphoric representations. I completely believe that. And I think one of the reasons that sometimes people struggle with their images and and the sort of symbolism and what happens is because for a large part, at least I'll speak for the culture I exist in here in the US, a lot of people don't have a lot of knowledge and experience um, dealing with that sort of mythopoetic symbolic realm. And so it's confusing, right? Like people see things in their journeys and then they wonder, is that real? How do I interpret this? And part of the confusion that we have going into those experiences stems from existing in a culture that doesn't really embrace or teach us how to navigate those kinds of experiences. In a sense, when people talk about preparation and, you know, it's like, well, how do you prepare for an experience like this? I'm like, read poetry every day. (laughs) Like, you know, just like, I mean, truly, like it's it's, uh, one way that you can prepare to navigate a, a realm that is very symbolic is by immersing yourself in the capacity to actually experience and understand symbolism. Yeah. You know, I want to say something about this sort of the process of being in the in the actual psychedelic experience, because there's a lot of talk about sort of this almost like it's a magic pill and you kind of go in and, you know, something happens to you and then you're healed. And I think it's really important for people to know, and especially people with trauma, that um, the process is actually quite collaborative and it's... Um, you do a lot of work. It's very hard. Most people come out of journeys and they're tired because they've been working for hours. And when I say it's collaborative, what I mean is that there's you and the guide, of course, but there's also you and the medicine. And every medicine that you take has its own kind of energy to it. And and depending on what you take, it may have uh, an actual sort of spirit uh, that, that comes with it. Um, but even if you're taking a medicine that's not associated with having a spirit, there's a quality to it. And there's a process in which you collaborate with the way that that medicine works. And, um, people talk a lot about how important it is to surrender to the experience. But what I want to say is, you know, surrendering, 
I think is um, it's complicated. It's a lot about being curious. So what happens a lot in journeys is that someone will see something or someone will feel something or there will be some kind of um, movement that's trying to happen. And uh, and especially when you're early on and doing this kind of work, you might feel kind of bowled over by it. Like, whoa, there's just all these <laughs> images happening and wow, my body wants to move. Um, but if you can, uh, and sometimes you lose your ego, so you can't, but if you have your ego and you can say to yourself, huh, why don't I like that experience? I'm sitting here saying this is uncomfortable and, I, and, I'm un- and I don't like it and I wish it would stop or it's a bad trip or whatever. But to actually say, what is going on there? Oh, actually, it feels like my arms are really tight and they want to like move around in a particular way. And to actually let them move, to let go and, and to feel into it um, and to just kind of bring curiosity to any part where it feels uncomfortable. And then I also think another uh, key kind of piece is like, you don't have to understand everything now. A lot of people go in and they want to hold on. They don't surrender. And part of how they don't surrender is by trying to analyze it as it's happening. It's almost kind of this like hungry, like, okay, I got to get the, you know, the medicine's giving me the thing right now that's going to heal me. And, you know, just like usually there's the journeys, you know, they last some time and, um, and that you can just note things and be with them and not fully understand them and know that they may or may not make more sense later. And I think that that, you know, is woven in with that thing I was talking about, like being able to kind of think like a poem or, you know, being in that mythopoetic realm. When you read a piece of poetry, you could read it many times for it to make more and more sense to you. And it might actually make sense to you a lot later in life. You might remember a line and sort of understand, oh, that is what that person was saying about love. I didn't even get it then. And a lot of people who do, you know, work with psychedelics and entheogens will talk about understanding their journeys years later in new ways. So I think that's just like critical to understand that part of surrendering is also just surrendering to it not always making sense in the moment and really letting a part of you that if you're living in the society I live in probably hasn't been very developed, but you can develop it and you can develop it in psychedelic space. But letting the part of you, because there is a part of all of us that can think in a symbolic sort of mythopoetic way. It's the part of us that's before language or beyond language um, and 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 exists in a very sort of like imagery-based place. But letting that part of yourself come forward is, I think, a really critical part of being able to speak the language of the medicine. And then the last thing I'll say on this is that you know, a lot of focus goes on like, I'm going to go into this one journey and I'm going to heal. And I, I think I might have said this at somewhere else in the in this interview. But um, basically, if you're healing intense trauma, prepare yourself, you're probably going to do more than one journey. And you will learn the language of that medicine if you do use the same medicine over time. You know, it's like going to someone's house for the very first time and meeting them and thinking you're going to have the most profound experience with them. And you've just met them. You know, you know, you don't know if they're safe or not. A lot of what's going on in an initial journey is just experiencing like, oh, this is me meeting you, MDMA. This is me meeting you, ketamine. This is me saying hello to you, ayahuasca. And um, and from there, sort of like building a relationship. And you you can get much more skilled, really, at navigating that space. Um, and I, I do think really profound healing can come from that first initial journey. But but just to name for people, 
if it doesn't, if it's confusing, if you feel like, oh my God, I blew my shot at this, it goes on. It goes on. There's just chapter one. It's just chapter one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe we could talk a little bit more about preparation. I know in one of our conversations, maybe over the last few months, um, you had mentioned something that you know we spend a lot of time talking about integration and hearing about integration, but not many people are talking about preparation. I, I can't remember in Inside Eyes if much was said about that, about preparation, but where are you today in thinking about preparing people to do this kind of psychospiritual work to, you know, whether psychedelic or not, or somatic, to try to get at sexual trauma and other deeply set trauma. Yeah. So I think preparation is huge. And I mean, I think both are huge. And, and a lot of people say that the the term integration kind of includes preparation. But I do, I do think it's helpful for people just to really spell it out that there's a lot that you can do beforehand. You know, and I'll also say, some people do zero preparation. I don't know, they end up at like a festival or something, or some friend gives them something, they do some entheogens or psychedelics, they have a totally transformative experience. And they're like, Oh, my gosh, this is amazing. You know, that happens. But if you know that you have trauma, and you know that you want to work on it, I definitely think it's you are you are banking on a much better experience happening if you do the preparation and and don't kind of just go in um, just kind of willy nilly. Yeah, what um, does that look like? Yeah, like, you, know, you know, Laura North Northrop's ideal preparation. <laughs> <laughs> My ideal preparation. Well, you know, I mean, one piece is that um, I'm obviously a really big fan of psychotherapy. I think that when you go into a journey. Uh, if you haven't peeled any layers back on the onion, you're going to, you're going to be peeling, you know, there's, we go in order, we go in order, like there's no, and this is a thing. I think a lot of people think that what they're going to do when they go into medicine work is that they don't have to peel the entire onion, that they're going to go to the core of it. And they're not going to have to deal with the, you know, 20 layers before the core. Mm -hmm. You have to actually deal with every single layer of the core until you get to the core. So one thing is, I think, uh, building the capacity for self-reflection, building the capacity for shame tolerance, honestly, building pain tolerance is something. And I, I say that, you know, I, emotional pain, kind Phys- of physical pain, yeah, emotional pain, maybe some physical pain, you know, a lot of journey work for people who have trauma is not comfortable. And I think that, um, a lot of people don't talk about that enough, how how hard it is. And so people go into these experiences and they're completely floored by the level of emotional pain they have to experience. And the thing is, if you can't deal with any emotional pain in a therapy session, your psychedelic journey is going to be really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm not saying that the medicine won't help you a little bit and and maybe maybe you'll be able to do more, but having a base level ability to to be in pain um, and soothe yourself or, or, or regulate yourself, I think actually is pretty critical. So I really think, you know, those things are, um, important to, uh, to, to be building up beforehand. And the other thing I would say is, you know, a lot of people say like, this is going to be, you know, 10 years of therapy in a night. It's going to be the most powerful healing experience of your life. If it's going to be the most powerful healing experience of your life, 
which if you experience trauma, you're probably going to do a bunch of these. You're going to have a bunch of most powerful. It's like, I wouldn't go in thinking it's going to be just that one. But, you know, why not prep? Like, you wouldn't just run a marathon tomorrow if you had never run before. You would mm-hmm. you would build up to it. You would understand there's some things I don't know about yet that I'm going to have to do in order to um, in order to do something that's so physically and emotionally demanding. Yeah. And what do you explain... Maybe to clients, you know, I, I heard you say once, maybe it was in your Horizons talk, you said that healing from sexual trauma is excruciating. And how would you explain it? what is what is the nature of that excruciating pain? Yeah, so I think with sexual trauma, and, and, and really, this is for a lot of trauma, but I'm, I'm you know, more focused um, in my expertise on sexual trauma. But what happens is that there are all these really overwhelming emotions that happen at the time and afterwards. And those emotions are so intense and so uncomfortable and and really like truly the word I would use is intolerable that they become dissociated. So the psyche, the spirit, the person cannot be in contact with that level of rage or that level of sadness uh, or that level of fear. So you spend all your time ignoring those feelings, right? Like substances, you know, different kinds of practices, whatever it takes to kind of get those feelings away. There's no, you, there's no way other than through. So what happens a lot in psychedelic space is that people actually start to go through the feelings. They go through them in a way where, you know, the medicine is helping them go through, you know, the guide is helping them go through. It's not like you're going through it in an experience like what originally happened where you had no holding. But it's important to remember, like, if there's a ton of grief in there, you are going to feel that grief. And that's what I think is excruciating to people. And I do also think that can be, you know, grief is not just a psychological state. It's a physical state. And so... Many people experience in in journey work being physically extremely uncomfortable yeah, too. I think of grief almost as more physical, like mm-hmm. it's than than psychological. It's just yeah, like you're having your heart ripped out. Like you can feel that, or the it's almost like I think of grief like a withdrawal state, almost like you're withdrawing from some really powerful substance, and your whole body's just crying out for what's gone. You know, that's interesting. You say that it makes me wonder if part of um, withdrawal from a substance is grief over losing it. Mm. Yeah, it's like losing your bad lover. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it was yeah, so yeah, great yeah. in yeah. the beginning and so, so bad at the end. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Often, often the case. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I heard you, I can't remember what interview you, but I heard you recently say, I'm just going to quote you. I think a lot about the medicines that are good for trauma has a lot to do with a therapist. I know you asked me about this and I was like, when did I say that? I was like, give me okay. some context. You can retract that. If you, no, no, no. If you like. you don't have to speak it. about that. I'll talk about it. I do think that as a clinician, if you want your the people you're working with um, to be able to go to really deep places with medicine, you do need to know what that medicine is like. And actually, this is a this is a thing that has come up on um, online forums that I've seen where people are discussing can you be a psychedelic therapist if you never actually use that medicine yourself? And I would say most of the time, the answer is no. Mm-hmm. You know, I do think there are people who have done so much work in sort of dream realms or symbolic realms, or they just have a capacity to like vibe in a way where they're going to be able to support somebody through something they haven't actually been through. But I think that's really few and far between. And so I do think, you know, 
the depth that you're willing to go as a clinician, it translates to the depth that you can hold somebody. You know, and one thing that happens in psychedelic journeys is like, you're, you know, they can be very, very intense. And so then as the guide, when you're sitting there with someone and they're do, they are saying, I'm dying right now, you need to have a pretty solid core inside to say, I don't think you're physically dying. You also need to know to how to assess, you know, if you need to take somebody to the ER, obviously. But, um, but to be able to know, like, no, what's happening is incredible emotional difficulty and I'm going to actually have the strength to hold you through that because I have walked this path or I have been in this realm before and I know how hard it is. And I think if you can't do that, that's where that's where we start to get kind of wonky as clinicians and, you know, we start functioning in a way in, in sessions where uh, we're, um, we're not really holding what's happening. We're operating out of our fear of what's yeah. happening. Yeah, I totally agree because I think I do a lot of ketamine work and I've done a couple high dose sessions and... And those were at times horrifying, you know, being like suffocated, buried alive, squished with these like weird um, bats in this cave, being extruded, being suffocated, being kind of exploded into nothingness. And it really is helpful because when uh, patients come out of some of these, I've I've been there mostly. (laughs) I kind of know how, I won't say I've had all the horror that ketamine can be, but I've, I've gone deep enough to know that pretty much know where it can go. And so, yeah, to have that landscape. Um, and I was on, a, I think I mentioned this on the podcast, last year I was on a Zoom panel about ketamine with four other docs. And it's interesting that two psych- three psychiatrists on the panel, we had all experienced ketamine and we were adamant that you should experience it. And there were two other docs, I think an ER doc and an and a anesthesiologist. And they said, no, that's weird. Like docs don't take the medicines they prescribe. And they were arguing against that. And the three psychiatrists were saying, look, this is different. This is these really powerful psychoactive medicines. Like if you haven't been in the places where you're sending people, like that's maybe not the best plan. Yeah. I mean, it is really different too, right? Like you don't necessarily take an antidepressant in order to prescribe an antidepressant, but in this realm, you take it, you take it in order to understand what's going on. Because it's not just it's not just like a pill that then affects your body and your system. It's you're, you're doing, it's a process. It's a process more than it's like a, uh, yeah, like a substance. Yeah. When you think back on all the stories on Inside Eyes, do you think that there are certain substances that are better for sexual trauma healing than others? Because, you know, those episodes featured psilocybin and MDMA and ayahuasca and um, LSD, LSD, others. And, you know, each person's story was different. And, um, but I'm wondering again, as you have a little distance from that, or, or, or alternatively, is it more that they're all potentially effective catalysts and has a lot more to do with other factors? Um, I think it's a combination of both of those things. I mean, 
I think that in the sort of, you know, practicalities of the world that we live in, there's questions of like accessibility, there's questions of pre-existing conditions that may or may not mean that a certain medicine is or is not like an appropriate medicine. So for example, let's say somebody was on SSRIs, um, suicidal, and wanting to work on their sexual trauma, you know, maybe ketamine would be more what they would be going toward because it's legal. They can talk to their doctor about what they're doing. They can take it when they have are on SSRIs. And uh, it's something that people, you know, think is really good for people who are depressed and suicidal. So, so maybe that would be, you know, the direction they would take. I think this also is sort of like over time, like, uh, there was somebody on my show who um, had used ketamine and really felt at the time really needed that stabilization and then was able, once they were no longer suicidal to and, and chronically depressed, to do the mushroom work that then ended up being really, really healing. So I think it's like when we think about this as a long-term thing, you know, it really depends on the moment, the time. I wonder, yeah, I'm curious about your thoughts on this. So I know I don't, I'm not trying to rank trauma. And you know, something we face a lot with the patients is people feeling like, oh, my suffering isn't enough to deserve to be here, or I'm ashamed to be on your couch because clearly some people had it worse. But I do think that there's something different about sexual trauma. And I'm wondering if it's because it's about shame. You know, it's horrible to have your mom suicide or have your dad abandon you or to be in a war. And I mean, we can think of all sorts of horrific traumas, but I wonder if there's something especially sinister and again, soul destroying about sexual trauma, because it's so filled with shame in a way that a lot of other traumas aren't perhaps. I I think, I think shame, but I also think just, you know, sexual trauma involves every type of abuse wrapped up, you know, into Mm -hmm. one. I mean, there's almost always neglect. It's a physical form of abuse. It's obviously a sexual form of abuse. Emotional. It almost is always has an emotional component and a psychological component. I mean, it's really, it's really abusive. And then on top of that, the way that people respond afterwards, not believing people, blaming people, maybe believing them, but just minimizing the impact. Yeah. And, and I also just think there's something about the well and and I'll say too I I believe that sexual violence is not always physical so for example if somebody is um being groomed for sexual violence or um they uh maybe are forced to witness some sexual violence like you can experience a, a form of sexual trauma where your body has never actually been touched mm-hmm. however I will say you know for sexual trauma where someone has actually experienced a physical violation it's just it's it's really bad. It's it's really, really, really spiritually damaging to have someone's body be physically violated like that. And then I also think, you know, your sexuality, I actually think is in a lot of ways very core to your spirit. Your sexuality is where desire comes from. It's a, a lot where power comes from. It's where pleasure comes from. It is this just incredibly magical place that then is like violently attacked. I, I think that's. Yeah, it's so tied up with your life force. Yeah. You're, you know, in the Jungian conception of the libido and the life force and sexuality and desire, like it's so, they're all so wrapped up together that, right, a damage to your sexual being or your, or your sexual life force is a damage to your, your core. That's, I mean, yeah, I say that a lot too. Yeah. I mean, and I maybe even say it in the show, just like I think it's, it's damaging to the life force and, and, yeah, I say a lot that sexual violence just crushes the human spirit. And, you know, 
these aren't really technical ways of talking about things, but it's just what I believe. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I really challenged, I just never really understood what this idea of spirit was, I think, until Inside Eyes. Really? Yeah. Wow. What, no, do, you, what do you think changed well, for you? I think it, two things shifted it. So I always wanted to believe in something more. Um, when I did acupuncture training maybe eight years ago, I became very convinced that there's chi. Uh-huh, yeah. And I think, okay, whatever, the, the, we clearly have a life force energy, chi. But then um, in recent years, I've started to see that that chi is, that's just one word to describe it. And I think there is an animating life force energy that we call it a lot of different things, spirit, soul, chi, um, but it's a thing. And and then when I listen to Inside Eyes and having you conceptualize sexual trauma as a spiritual wound, it just something clicked. It's like, yes. I, and I thought, I don't fully get that because it's hard to even put that into words, but that's it. And that's why pills don't really work and talking doesn't really work. And you have to go, you have to use the proper tool. You have to go into the proper realm. And we haven't been in the proper realm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I feel you on all those levels. And, you know, I think another thing that happens culturally is um, we have all of these ways that we're allowed to move our bodies, that we're allowed to be verbal, uh, what we're allowed to say or think at any given moment. And, um, and a lot of that prevents us from doing some of the things people do in journeys. So, I'm very curious, like what actually happens when you take a psychedelic? But one thing that's happening right now in the US is that when somebody goes into a psychedelic space, they are being told, it's okay if you shake around. It's okay if you vomit. It's okay if you scream. It's okay if you cry. It's basically anything your physical being could do, it's okay to do it right here. And you know, I'm trained in sensory motor psychotherapy. I practice somatic psychotherapy. And I can't tell you how many times I've sat across from somebody and tried to help them do some of the physical processing that I know they would do if they were using a psychedelic because Mm. they wouldn't stop themselves anymore. And they sit there and they're like, I'm too embarrassed Mm. to do this in front of you. Yeah. And and, uh, and no shame, you know, just it's hard. It's hard to break through this sort of conditioning. So, but it is something that culturally we allow that in psychedelic space. And so that work, that is some of that sort of spiritual uh, processing that, and I hold therapy as a very sacred space, um, but for a lot of people, it's really hard to drop into that and, and say it's okay. And then A, I think it's said to be okay in psychedelic space, and B, you're really not going to be able to stop it even if you try. <laughs> I mean, that's the beauty of the medicine. Yeah. The medicine's like, if you, you know, if you imbibe me, this is where we're going. Yeah. You know, when you said that, I hadn't thought about this in a while, but as part of the MAPS therapist training, we did um, a day of holotropic breath work. And so no drugs involved, but we're doing this specific kind of hyperventilation to this really wild tribal music. And there's this huge room with like 45 therapists who are laughing and shrieking and writhing and jumping. And I mean, it was, if someone just walked in, you'd think all these people or at least half the people, not the sitters, are completely on drugs. But I think I just was smiling as you described that. Like, and I remember feeling letting my body do what it needed to do. But it had to be 
you know, with kind of the altered state of holotropic and in this context, but it was ecstatic and it was horrible and it was painful and all sorts of stuff came up. And so I was just imagining, yeah, you, if I had been asked to do that one-on-one with my somatic therapist, I think I would have just laid there like, "Mm, I don't don't think anything's happening, Laura. (laughs) Well, and you know, the other thing about doing group work, I think is that it can also really help. Like, um, because you know, you, maybe you're sitting there being like, I don't want to do this. And, and also th- there's not one therapist staring at you, you know, it's maybe a little bit of pressure is relieved, but also, you know, maybe it's like, I don't want to drop in all the way. This is scaring me. I don't like what my body's about to do. And then you hear the person next to you freaking out. <laughs> you're like, all right, you're going to, you're going to scream and throw up or shake around or, you know, cry like, oh, okay. Like I could, I could make a little noise and a little <laughs> movement over here. I can let go. I wonder if we might transition to talking about um, the Horizons Conference last year. So the Horizons Psychedelic Conference, was that the end of 2021 in New York City? Yeah, it was December 2021. Yeah, Yeah. I unfortunately didn't get to go, but uh, you had emailed me and said that you were going to speak. I thought, oh, I really want to go meet Laura and hear her speak. But I did hear from two different people that the most important thing they heard at the conference was your talk. And um, you said... you. Uh, sent me a copy of it and it's very short and it's amazing and it's beautiful and it's powerful and i'm, I'm going to quote a couple things from it but i wonder if you, we might just start with you talking about what was your goal you had a short you know four or five minutes or something to give a talk to hundreds of people from around the world who are all there to gather and learn about this sort of the state of the art of psychedelic therapy Yeah, so I was asked to come and give a 10-minute talk as a part of a three-person panel that was called, um, I think it was called Hype, Harm, Bias, and Failure. And it was sort of a panel that was about, um, you know, all the things that are going to happen that aren't actually going to be awesome as um, psychedelic medicine starts to mainstream. And I was asked to speak about, uh, you know, people in the field who are causing sexual harm to their patients or... um, to the the passengers or kind of whoever's coming to them. So this would be like guides and, and therapists who are causing sexual harm, which is a huge issue um, for anybody listening who hasn't heard about this yet. And it really blew up last year. There have been some really high profile cases um, where people are coming forward and, and talking about being sexually abused or groomed by their therapists. And and this is, it's, it's come up a lot in the last year, but this has been, you know, a part of, psychedelic medicine history for a long time. It's a part of non-psychedelic therapy. This is just a huge issue in the field. And I will also say every time someone asks me about this and they're like, how do we solve this in in the world of psychedelic medicine? I'm like, well, we should look at the fact that there's a global epidemic of sexual violence and that's, you know, we need to solve it on a much bigger scale. And in the in the normal therapy room. Yes. You know, norm- I mean, sexual yeah. boundary violations happen in completely sober, non-psychedelic therapy. Absolutely. All too frequently. Yes. So what, what I was thinking when I was going into that talk, I mean, I was thinking I'm terrified because it's really hard to speak publicly about sexual violence. It's really hard to talk about something that's so polarized. You know, there's a lot of people who have really different opinions about what's going on and and about how to deal with it. Yeah, but you know, something that really guides me is just like, I need to speak the truth. And, you know, whatever that truth is under sort of, as I as I hold it to be. And so, 
yeah, like it's, I even say in the talk, you know, it's, it's really compelling to want to come in and kind of be like, you know, make a grandstand and be like, we need to stop this in its tracks or, or to kind of detail out how horrible it is, you know, but really like, again, practical, practicality, what's going to work? Like what actually makes the change? And so what I chose to focus on is just um, healing. Actually, clinicians need to do their own healing work. We need to not put our own stuff onto the people that we work with. You know, and I talk a little bit as well about training and things like that, because I think training is a huge part of limiting sexual violence. But ultimately, a lot of what I think causes harm, hurt people, hurt people. And so yeah. that's that's really, I think, the kind of starting point of yeah, where I, I love that. that I want to say that again, hurt people, hurt people. And who's not hurt? Yeah. And research is me search. So who's going into therapy? Oh, gosh. I mean, you know, it's like, <laughs> really, like, addiction specialists mostly have had addiction and yeah. eating disorder specialists. And trauma therapists, I think, mostly, have, you know, so yeah. I think we, we are all drawn to this realm consciously or unconsciously because we are hurt. Yeah. And it's one of the things I loved about your talk. Let me just, I want to quote one thing you said here. Um. You said, being a healing practitioner is a sacred role and it comes with incredible sacrifice. You are your own instrument and you are required to heal beyond what you might choose to do if you weren't in the, on this path. The power inherent in our work, being with someone who is inebriated and emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, and physically dependent on you is immense. And when you enter the room, you bring all parts of yourself, including the wounded parts. And you have to know that the parts of you that are lonely, that are ashamed, that have never felt good enough, or that want to revel in being idealized, have their needs met some other way. I love that. Because I think what, you know, it's so tempting, I think, with particularly with sexual, sexual boundary violations in the therapy room or the psychedelic space, it's so tempting to say the people that do that are evil or terrible or bad. They're, they're not us. Like, we are the good people. And I sent you an article by Glenn Gabbard, and I'll link to it in the show notes, but a fascinating article by Glenn Gabbard, a psychoanalyst and psychiatrist from 1996, where he talks about what he learned from treating um, 80 therapists and analysts who violated sexual boundaries. And what the take-home message is, they are us. Yeah, a very small percentage of them are kind of perpetrator, creepy, narcissistic, toxic, malignant, psychopath dudes. Most of them are just regular people like you and me. And I think that's the lesson. I love this, Laura, when you say like, it's all of us. And I, you know, as you spoke to the Horizons audience, like we can try to demonize, oh, there's this evil group of men who are doing this awful stuff. And there's some truth to that, but largely, no, it's us. Like we all have to own this. Yeah. And I think, you know, in the media, mostly we hear about the people who are, you know, have chronically abused multiple people because there will be enough sort of force around that, that they get a big call out. But we don't hear about the people where they maybe did this to one or two people in their career and, and continued to work and maybe didn't do it again. But I'm not saying that that's okay. You know, it's it's really harming to patients when people do that. And, um, and yeah, you know, what you're saying, I mean, um, yeah, just it, it really, it, it really can be any of us. And I think part of being on this path is not only that you went to therapy, you know, while you were in grad school, you it's it's you keep doing the healing work all throughout your life, you know, like, 
when you're mid-career and your parents die, or when you're mid-career and you go through a divorce, or when you're mid-career and you experience a new trauma, or someone else in your life experiences a trauma and it triggers your trauma. It's Healing is not a singular act. It's actually, it's like eating food. It's like, we just keep doing this because we are constantly experiencing harm and wounding and, and also the world that we live in is constantly harming people around us and us. And so, um, yeah, the, and you know, it's not fun. Like, I mean, if someone had told me how much healing I was going to have to do, I don't even know if I would have become a therapist. <laughs> like, yeah. If they don't tell you how hard it's going to be. Right. Or I've thought about this a lot. I remember in training thinking, okay, this is so fascinating and this is so hard. Yeah. It's so hard. And then and now I'm 20 years in and I think it's so hard, yeah. but in a different way. And part of it is just because, you know, it's very isolating and, you know, I feel like the final backstop and by the time people have come to me or you, I think they've suffered for so long and, and, and it's, it's so desperate and um, it's a ton of pressure. And then the other thing I think that happens, and we're going to move into this a little later, is people bringing out our own stuff, you know, and I've... <laughs> I think I would have thought early in my career, oh, yeah, I've really worked through all my stuff. But no. no. The longer you work in this space, the more your stuff comes up and either slaps you in the face or I think as you, know, as you pointed out or as Gabbard points out, like it can you know, sneak in in this sexual realm where, as Gabbard, I thought it's so interesting, he said the number one justification, exp- explanation people had of why they did it, I was in love with my client. I loved my patient. Yeah. That's... And, that's kind of sad. I mean, I get that's a powerful rationalization for doing that. But yeah, I loved him or her so much that that's why I did it. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a realm where people just, they get so in their own stuff. Because, you know, and and he's writing in the in 96, you said, Mm -hmm. yeah, so I mean, there's maybe a little bit less awareness about this. But just 2022, when we're recording this interview, we know that um, even when both the client and the um, clinician, both I'm putting it in air quotes, consent to the experience. And I put that in air quotes because there's a power dynamic there where it's very consent is very complicated. In most cases, it's reported as traumatic when the relationship ends. And and I'm I'm wanting to like highlight that because clinicians know that. Mm-hmm. Clinicians know that this is highly likely to be very, very traumatic to the person that is the client. And yet in their, you know, love mind, you know, and, and in their very unconscious place, they don't listen to the fact that this is this is a problem. It's not a good idea. You know, he also talks about in that article, people basically uh, becoming sexual with their clients because they think that they're helping them. Mm-hmm. Like they, 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 they feel sort of like inept like oh i can't I, you haven't gotten you haven't done your healing yet and i'll heal you by loving you and they actually feel almost like a martyr like they've really you know and it's just like no 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 this is your own stuff mm-hmm. i mean in, in that you know like i actually think that relates to psychedelic work in the sense that like you know one thing we really face as clinicians is letting people suffer actually watching suffering and not actually being able to change it and when we step into the role where we think that we're powerful enough that we can change someone else's healing, we have already crossed a line. Yeah. Because we witness it, you know, we support people, but to some degree, they have to be collaborating in their suffering being reduced. And we don't actually have control over, I mean, and 
just, yes, in many ways, we can't control someone's suffering. And, um, and if we cannot accept that, that's one of the places I really see, especially early clinicians, I teach a lot of clinicians um, who are going into the realm of being a therapist. That's where I see a lot of people start to do little boundary violations because they feel responsible to try to kind of like cross the line just to make it a little bit better. Mm. And I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. This is what what's the actual task here is to watch someone suffer and not turn away and keep supporting them and keep having hope for them, but not to cross a line. And I think that happens a lot in psychedelic work because, you know, watching someone suffer, an immediate thought is, let me hold your hand. Let me comfort you. Let me give you a hug. And my question to the clinician is, is that hug for you or for them? read another uh, excerpt from your talk, Laura, because I think this relates to what we're talking about. Quote, it is critical to understand how trauma manifests in the human psyche and in the therapy relationship. So many of us are working out of our scope of competence and need more trauma training. And psychedelic medicine is somatic work, psychological work, and spiritual work. And most people practice in all three of these realms, but they're only, they're while only being trained in one. And if you want to work with trauma, you need to have a core of integrity so strong that when the room starts to bend upside down because you're entering the realm of your client's very traumatized psyche, you still know which way is up. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people really struggle to understand trauma. And one of the, one of the reasons I bring that topic up is, you know, you might be working with someone where they're saying, I love you. I want to have sex with you. I want, if you, a lot of people have the fantasy that if they were just closer to their therapist, if that person was their friend or their mom or their partner, that they would be more healed. So when someone is saying to you, hey, I'm inviting you into doing this, you have to understand as the clinician, this is a part of the trauma. And in fact, it could be that the most important thing that you do in that moment is say no. Even if the person is sitting there saying oh my gosh, how can you do this to me? You know, you're not giving me what I need. You saying no, and I I say this a lot to people kind of as I'm teaching about this stuff, you know, we're listening on all levels all the time. So uh, while someone might be overtly, openly saying, hey, how could you do this to me, setting these boundaries that, you know, are reasonable, but I don't like, some other part of them just heard, you are safe you actually will not cross the line. And especially with sexual trauma, this is huge because a lot of people feel that they caused their sexual trauma to happen to them. And so this gets enacted in, in a therapeutic space where somebody is does something that invites some type of boundary violation and the clinician needs to show, no, you aren't actually, you are not powerful enough to make me do something violating to you. That's not the how you were sexually traumatized. But when the clinician then is like, oh, no, I am overpowered by this request you're making, so I'm going to fulfill it, it, it communicates this terrible narrative that people hold where they feel responsible for the harm. Yeah. Yes, yeah, Saj Rasvi talked about this a couple episodes ago, this idea that it's so hard for most therapists to tolerate their client's pain. And we, yeah, we all want to alleviate and dial it down, but sometimes what we need to do, right, is just let it be. 
you know, I was thinking from this quote, when I applied to be a therapist in the MAPS trial, I was having my phone screen and uh, the woman screening me, she said, well, tell me about your trauma experience. It doesn't seem like you have much trauma training. And I was all offended. I'm like, look, I'm a psychiatrist. I know about trauma. And it, but then I realized I was just kind of talking smack. And then after the phone call, I thought, I don't really think I've had good trauma training at all. And now I know this was a few, this was like back in 96, I'm sorry, 2016. Uh, my trauma knowledge and training has come in the last four years. It's come through your podcast. It's come through working with Saj. It's come through working with ketamine. It's come through my work in the MDMA trials. It's really been on the job learning. And it's been a number of people that I've interviewed on this podcast. But in my residency, 2001 to 2005, we learned about PTSD, but it was like this island of PTSD. And but it didn't really integrate with any of the other stuff we were learning. And it was just, it was kind of, uh, I don't want to say fringe topic, but it was a side topic. It was a side dish. And I'm guessing in psychiatry programs now, I hope it's more of a main course. But it is ironic that here I was, you know, psychiatrist at that point with like 15 years of experience and being interviewed by someone, hey, do you have trauma? And I'm like, oh, I got all this trauma training. But I didn't. <laughs> like this, the idea of spiritual or somatic, both those realms, I was completely ignorant of. And again, the more I've worked with trauma and been, or, been around this, I see though, that's the realms where you need to be. And, yeah, that's, I appreciate you sharing that because, you know, I think a lot of people, they just don't want to admit that they don't have any trauma training. Um, and obviously, you know, plenty of people do great work and we can learn about trauma from all different sort of realms. It's not like somebody is a, you know, a, a bad clinician if they don't have a trauma training. But I think if you're going to specialize in trauma, which what a lot of people are saying is, you know, I'm specializing in trauma with psychedelic medicine. And yeah, my question is, what solid framework are you using for looking at what trauma is? Like, how are you understanding it? Because if you're just understanding it as, okay, you're suffering, okay, I give you these drugs, okay, you know, I sit here and, and listen to you and hold your hand and comfort you. I mean, it, it's so complex. And especially if you're doing psychological work. I mean, I think it is one thing to do something that's more like trip sitting. But if you are doing any of the work to prepare and integrate and interpret and do a- anything that's sort of outside of just I'm administering this medicine, that is where I think um, it's very critical that you understand what you're doing because you can cause a lot of harm. And then I I don't know if I talk about this in the talk, but I, I know I've talked about it a lot since when people ask me about this. You know, I also think even if you're just going to do the part where you're um, you're administering medicine, it, you need enough trauma training to know what to not do. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean that you need to like have some kind of sense of, you know, the depths of how the psyche gets organized. And, you know, there's all kinds of things like depending on the age someone was traumatized, like all the different defenses that might emerge around a particular trauma or when something is complex trauma and et cetera, et cetera. You still need to know things like, you know, here's what someone looks like when they're triggered. Here's what how you might respond. And here's where you should not cross a line. Like, don't start interpreting, don't have sex with that, whatever the things are, mm-hmm. you know? What do you think that looks like, sort of minimum efficacious <laughs> level of trauma training? Again, if you, you know, if you had supervisees or, you know, master's level students coming to you saying, hey, I really want to specialize in trauma, or maybe I want to do you know, psychedelic trauma work, 
I mean, what do you think is sort of um, minimum? Yeah, minimum essentials that people need. You know, again, if they're thinking about working with this as you know, uh, kind of in a psychological, a somatic, a, yeah. a spiritual realm. Well, so one thing I would say is, if somebody wants to specialize in it, they need maximum. I wouldn't give them the minimum. I would okay. say like, just, go, you know, go get a lot of training. So what would that be? Like- yeah. I mean, for me, so I always say when, because people ask me this question a lot and I'm always like, you know, who's alive still and, and doing trainings and is so amazing is Janina Fisher. And she is such an incredible, like internationally recognized trauma expert. That's who I trained with. Um, I trained, did sensory motor training with her. Um, and it, she has online trainings. She's amazing. She's so, so knowledgeable and she's psychodynamically trained, a psychotherapist, IFS trained, sensory motor trained. I mean, she's, she's solid. Yeah. Yeah. She's really good. Yeah. And, you know, and I say that she's still, I mean, she's, she's, you know, getting, um, older. And so I don't know when she's going to retire, but I, I would say if you need a training right now, like sign up, she's amazing. You know, I'm really partial to a somatic training because I do think that somatic tra- somatic training is really psychedelic. And I think that it's just really critical to understand what's going on in the body and to understand that you can look at someone and if you are trained well enough, you can see what is happening in their, like what trauma state they're in. Mm. They don't need to be telling you, you know, I'm afraid and I want to run out of the room. You mm-hmm. can see that they're in a fight response or a flight response or freeze or fawn mm-hmm. or whatever. And you can see it because of the muscle tone in their face. You can see it based on the movements that they're making. Um, you can see it because when you look at a person, you know, a lot of us don't realize this, but you you can actually be registering and tracking their breathing and their, their whole nervous system. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's a really critical thing to start to get in tune with if you want to specialize in trauma. But I think that the... So there's a somatic realm. I think the psychological piece is one that, um, yeah, like, I think it's important to understand what happens in relationship with trauma. And the reason I think that's important is because everyone who does guided medicine work, no matter what you're doing, you are in relationship to the people that you work with. And um, sexual violence is a relational wound. That's not something that happens where it's like, okay, a lightning bolt hit me and I'm traumatized. It always happens in relationship to another human being. And often there's lots of trauma that's just related to how other human beings either allowed that trauma to happen or reacted to the trauma. So it's not even always just that it's the abuser that's the only relationship. So all of that, all of that relational wounding always comes out with healing practitioners in some way. And that's where I see people just not understanding, oh, like this person right now is agreeing with what you're saying and they're not going to say no to you because they are literally terrified and they don't even know it. And they're terrified to say no to you. So when you ask for consent around something, you know, it's like you need to have the training to be able to work with consent in a way that I'm kind of over how often this term is used, but that is trauma informed. And by that meaning understanding what happens in relationship when somebody is experiencing trauma. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've talked about this on Back from the Abyss before, but for years and years as a psychiatrist, there are all these patients I had with quote unquote medication resistant depression. They were in dissociative shutdown, yeah. you know, and they look yeah. depressed. But you said if you're not trauma informed, if you don't, if you're not somatically trained as I wasn't, I looked at them, yeah, they look really depressed, which is one lens, but the other lens is no, look closely, actually look at how shut down and numb they are. You know, and then now I've learned to ask people things like, 
about numbness, about fuzziness, about not really being able to feel anything versus, you know, are you sad or irritable? And so I, yeah, that was just such a missing piece. And it's such a huge, and um, again, I, I think this shows how much the field has changed that not that long ago, even at really good psychiatry training programs, trauma was a side dish. Yeah. It wasn't a primary lens. Yeah. You know, someone asked me recently, do you think that we're getting kind of overkill on trauma? It's like, everything's about trauma. Everybody's, and I'm like, no, there's actually just that much trauma. It's, it's really, really, really common. And it's an important thing for us to be sort of looking at and understanding and always building more and more ways of understanding it at a deeper level. And yeah, I mean, where we're at now is amazing. And also like, who knows, in 20 years, I might, you know, people might be doing interviews where they're like, that whole thing she said didn't make sense. (laughs) I mean, I do see people occasionally without trauma. And it's so, sometimes I high five them. Like, you're so, that's so great. You know, a woman comes in with sort of pure bipolar disorder with like, oh, I grew up in a loving family and I have a loving partner and like seemingly, seemingly no trauma. And they just have cyclical mood disorder. I think, wow, that's so great. We can treat that. (laughs) We can treat trauma too, but you know, but you're right. It's not all about trauma, but it's a lot about trauma. I do want to say a piece about like, because we're talking about training and I'm mm-hmm. saying somatic and psychological. I think it's really valuable to also do spiritual work so that you can engage on the spiritual level with people. Yeah, what does that look like? Yeah, you know, so that's something where I would say this is sort of that difference between just prescribing the pill and taking the medicine. I think that spiritual work it can be a lot of things, but it's a lot about you developing something in yourself. It's not necessarily something where you're going to a training and someone's giving you information and then you're just applying it. I think spiritual work is about becoming deeply embodied and really, really, really connected to your own humanity and not pushing away experience. You know, like some of the really big spiritual questions that we face are questions like, you know, how do we live? What does it mean to be alive? What does it mean to love? What does it mean to hate? What does it mean to die? Like what, what, what is, you know, just looking at sort of the human condition, um, what is responsibility? Like all these sort of big existential questions. And I think in that, you know, each of those can expand really, really, really far. And it's doing our own deep inquiry. And you can do that in all kinds of faiths. You can do that by doing your own medicine work. But I think that's really critical and um and one thing I'll say, you know, about what happens, I think, in sexual trauma is that someone who um, has not experienced sexual trauma is in some ways, often, depending on what else they've experienced, but often sort of innocent to how severe, how far violence can go. And then in that process of being exposed to that through being sexually violated, there's a moment where that person's being becomes aware of just how incredibly toxic, severe, evil humanity can be. And that's really a, that's a spiritual moment. I mean, it's, it's horrible and it's tragic, but it's also be a moment of being thrust into a spiritual inquiry. Like, how can this be? How can it be that we have life and, and we have all this amazing beauty and we also can cause incredible harm? And those are questions that as a clinician, 
if you don't do your spiritual work, you probably don't want to face. So that would be some of the stuff I would say, like becoming sort of trauma informed on a spiritual level is like doing your own spiritual work so that you can really grow the capacity in yourself to look at that stuff. I'm wondering, Laura, if that's one of the ways that potentially that trauma therapists and particularly trauma therapists who work with sexual trauma by having some kind of spiritual practice or spiritual foundation that keeps you from getting too well, damaged by the work. Yes. Because, I mean, is there any, I mean, there's a lot of hard things that you and I work with, but this, you know, people who specialize in, in this, like the work you do is profoundly distressing. And she said what it says about the potential of potential ways of people to hurt one another. But how you don't yeah, don't get sucked into just like a hopeless abyss on that. I think this is so critical. And you know, I think when I was earlier on in my career, I didn't have as strong of a spiritual practice. I was kind of like, spirituality, what is it? I want this. Ah. <laughs> and then um, and I noticed, you know, I looked around and I was like, the people who are really good at what they do and really sustaining this, and they do not, they seem like they're living good lives, like practitioners. I would look at them and be like, they're all really spiritual. So what's going on here? And I was really curious about this. And I, I mean, I would go to my own therapy and just be like, oh, like, <laughs> what is spirituality? You know, because I grew up in this really spiritually sort of devoid environment. And I was like, what is it? You know, I know it's not the same as religion. And, um, and I noticed myself being taxed by the work in a way that was not sustainable. And I think um, it was it was like really dropping into a spiritual practice that helped me you know, go into the room with people and remember, and this is part of that thing of letting someone suffer. It's it's almost like becoming right-sized. I'm not a God. I can't take away your suffering. And I'm also, you know, I'm not, um, I'm not nobody. <laughs> like I'm right here and I can be with you and I can witness it and I can cry with you and feel with you and validate for you that it wasn't okay. But I'm in a lot of ways, I'm just like another human being walking right next to you. And to actually feel myself be held by something so much bigger. And to me, that is, you know, life, earth, you know, but however anybody wants to call it, being able to drop into that spiritual practice around my clinical work greatly improved my capacity to do it. And and truly, I think it's the thing that is going to allow me to do this for as long as I, you know, am capable. Mm -hmm. And I think if I hadn't, I don't know if I would be able to keep doing it because yeah, like listening to people tell you about horrible things every time you go to your job, it's, we are impacted. Yeah. The only way that I think that you can do this, I mean, truly is to just like have a deep, some kind of deep spiritual practice. And I'll also say, you know, spiritual practice, a lot of people have practices that they don't necessarily call spiritual but if if I ask them, like, how are you sustaining yourself in this work? And they tell me what they're doing. I'm like, solid. That's a spiritual <laughs> practice. Mm-hmm. You know, like going home and like being present with your kids and like watching them, like, you know, just taking in the beauty of their like capacity to feel joy. That is a spiritual practice. And so, yeah. 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 I think running is a little, little bit of that for me. Let's transition to talk about your book, Radical Healership, which was published this year. What were your goals? What were you hoping for by putting this out into the world? Yeah, so so this book is all about, for people who don't know, you know, it's all about, well, it kind of fronts like it's a book about, you know, how to build your healing practice, uh, you know, if you're a healing practitioner, like how to literally build your business. 
But ultimately, the book is anti-capitalist. The book is a lot about thinking about the work you do from a spiritual lens. And and sort of embedded in, in every little aspect of it is a lot of sort of information about like how I think about healing work. Ultimately, I really want more people who, if you want to do it, to feel empowered to be healing practitioners. And, um, and I want people to be able to do that in a way that's really sustainable. And that is because I'm, you know, like a lot of us, very sad about the state of the world. The people in the world need healing. And we are a part of that delivery system. And when people sort of think, I want to become a healing practitioner, but I don't know if I can. And, you know, can I make any money? And can I do this? And can I, you know, how will it be? I'm like, ooh, wait, 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 wait. Don't let that, don't let that dream inside you die. (laughs) (laughs) We need you. We need you. We really need you. Um, And so that's, yeah, that's a big part of why I wrote it. And, you know, and also I want healing practitioners to be able to think in a political way um, and to think in a spiritual way. Because... I just think, you know, even if you don't, uh, we're all operating in a political, spiritual realm all the time. And if you don't know that and you don't claim it and you don't interact with it, you're still going to be doing it. Um, you're just going to be doing it kind of unconsciously. And there's there's potential harm to be caused to yourself, you know, and to others. Yeah. And one of the things that I really liked about the book was that you used your own personal growth and and healing and wisdom to talk about how becoming a therapist challenged you. One of those things was just becoming more confident that you could be competent, that you had struggled with a lot of self-doubt. And um, and another thing that really hit me was this whole idea of growing up in poverty and how you had to come to grips with that and the fact that you you carried that in the way you thought about money and clients and charging and billing and and I think we all carry that whether you came from you know a family with fifty million dollars or five dollars you know if you're going into the healing professions you're going to charge people and you're going to ask them to pay you some amount of money for services and money stuff is going to come up and I don't hear many people talking about that I think that was near the end of the book that the money chapter I was really moved by that because you spoke so honestly about just the pain of coming from that kind of background and what you had to do to now live in the Bay Area in a very expensive place and try to figure out how to charge money, enough money so you can live and and have a life, but also come to some sort of um, peace with that. Yeah, I, you know, I totally think that this affects everybody and, and class is something that we do not talk about enough. And in the book, I'm basically like, here's your homework. You know, you need to confront your class experience and really, really deeply dive into how this actually affects you're you're running a business, you know, you're running a business. It's it's related to class. And it, and one of the places that I really go to is really thinking about class from through a lens of um of thinking about love. You know, and ultimately one of the things that I I don't know if it comes through strong enough, but I mean, sometimes I like bludgeon people over the head with my ideas. So maybe it comes through and I just am like, I didn't, you know, bludgeon, but like, basically, that's a terrible image anyway. But basically, you know, the other thing that I really want to inspire people to do when they think about money is to stop thinking about money from a lens of this material, this thing will solve my emotional and spiritual issues. And to really, really think through how much money do I actually need? Um, and what am I doing with it? Because 
so many people, I mean, most of us, what we think is more money is better and more money is not better. Actually, having a lot of money, there's studies that show that it's actually pretty bad for people's psychology to have an excessive amount of money. And the other thing is that I think that it um, it replaces spiritual work in this way that, you know, one of the spiritual sort of uh, processes that we all have in our lives is the fact that we will die and that we will probably fall ill and that we will suffer. And this is an extremely, you know, painful, complex process that our society has become pretty twisted around because we're not very spiritually grounded as a society. And so a lot of what we do is just think, if I just make more money, that pays the medical bills. If I just make more money, I will be more comfortable. If I just make more money, I can move away from X, Y neighborhood and go over here and do X, Y, and Z. You know, I can control my entire life to where, what? You're going to escape dying? No. You're going to escape suffering? Not really. And and this is where I'm like, this is money trying to replace a spiritual process. And in that process of hoarding wealth and of the idea that we should all hoard wealth, we engage in exploitation that harms people, including ourselves. So this is this is sort of the, this is another big important message of the book. Yeah. Well, I thought, you know, and kind of an overarching message of the book was know yourself deeply so you can have this business of yourself, this, you know, as a therapist. And um, it kind of reminds me, I think maybe six or eight months ago, I heard this totally fascinating podcast. And it was an interview with a sex worker, full service escort. And she was describing kind of her business model, how she does her business. And I was listening to it and I thought, she does the same thing I do. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But by that, I mean, so she talked about, you know, early years, she sort of would see anybody and she was sort of not charging enough. And she was in some out of her league in some bad situations and got traumatized and, um, and then realized kind of like I have in my career, I need to be very conscious about who am I good with? Who am I not good with? Who, who fills my bucket? Who drains my batteries? You know, like I've told my assistant who screens people, I've told her, I was like, look, if people can have really severe mental illness, people can be potentially violent, psychotic in and out of the state hospital. If they want to play ball, like if they want to work with me and work, I'm in. But I've realized this far in my practice, if people are thinking that I'm going to do the work for them, you can go to someone else. And But it was so interesting, like hearing this her whole description of what everything from charging to what she would do and not do, I just thought... This is exactly what psychiatrists do. And I think reading your book, this is what therapists do, meaning like you have this very personal service business. It's not your body, but it's your psyche. It's your it's your psycho-spiritual energy, which is, again, very intimate. And if you don't come up with a, if you will, like a business plan, like a psyche, psycho-spiritual plan, like if you don't know it, like you are going to get sucked dry. You're going to, you're going to get demoralized. You're going to burn out. You're it's, you're going to end up in a bad place. Yeah, for sure. And and I'll just say too, the book is actually, it's targeted towards any kind of healing practitioner. So it's not just therapists, but 100%, like I totally agree with you. And I mean, sex workers do really deep emotional, psychological, spiritual work. And that's a profession that's so degraded in the world that we live in. But 100%, it's like 
yeah, this is most definitely very, very similar in terms of like, how do you run a business where you are your own instrument? And, and it would be different if you weren't your own instrument. But for anybody who's listening, who is or is a practitioner or becoming a healing practitioner, this is like a critical thing for us to understand and never forget. This is like, this is your life energy, you know, like, and if you don't treat it well, that has a long lasting impact on you. I mean, we're talking about you could potentially take years off your life if you do not deal with the stress that is that comes from from doing this kind of work. I think during COVID, you know, my psychiatrist colleagues in Colorado, I know a number of them that have really been spiritually, psychologically crushed and have had to take time away or even leave the field. And that's just, you know, my small community. So how many healers and mental health professionals around the country, around the world are just frayed and hanging on by their fingernails? I mean, I feel that. I feel like some of the, there's something that I felt like I had to do during the pandemic, during the part that was the most kind of intense, because obviously we're still in it. But um, I, and it was a really, really big sacrifice. And I mean, I questioned doing it, but um, I basically got to a point where I was like, the only capacity I have for other people is being used on my clinical work. And that means that I can't show up for my community. I can't even really show up for friends. I, you know, I can just show up for the people who are the very closest to me and then for my clients. And yeah, and I thought a lot about this. Like I'm doing this, I'm making a big sacrifice right now because I have really limited capacity and I'm only giving it to my to the people that I've, you know, but I do long-term work. Like those are people I've committed a lot of my life to. And and so I did it. I would not do it, you know, for my entire life, but I was like, all right, you know, I would ask myself, can you do six months of this? And then it would be like, the pandemic keeps going. I'd be like, can you do another year? You know, can you do two years? <laughs> and now, you know, I'm, I feel like my capacity is a lot stronger. And, and I also, you know, was really lucky to be able to have my own really good therapist and do a lot of my own, you know, to, to, to really draw on my own supports and do medicine work to be able to make it through the pandemic. Um, but um, yeah. It, it's it's really, really taxing to go through something like that and keep working. Yeah. What are you most excited about, most hopeful about in all these realms? Oh, in all these realms? You mean like psychedelics and books and yeah, everything. all this stuff, yeah. everything? Because we've been talking about a lot of hard stuff and yeah. things going badly and the challenges and burning, you know, and, yeah. um, you know, it might be good to end this on a hopeful note. I mean, this is, you know, we've been in the abyss, but we can pop back out pop here. Back out. I don't know. I know you're a hopeful, optimistic person. I really am. Yeah. What I'm really excited about is a number of people that I've talked to who are, are working on building out um, medicine style retreats where they're very, very accessible in the sense that even if you do not have the money to pay for it, there will be some type of subsidized funding for people to get healing. And if you have the money to pay for it, you're, you know, you're paying more, you're subsidizing it. And I'm seeing it's not everybody, right? Most people are just going to be building out like in Oregon, people are going to be building out these things where you pay three grand to take, you know, one, one, do one medicine journey or whatever. There's going to be that stuff. And, you know, I'm just, I got my eyes on the prize. Like, <laughs> What I'm really, really excited about is the people who are just trying to make this work really accessible. And then also I'm excited about how much um, how much integrity I hear people wanting to bring to the work. Because it's one thing to just give people medicine and, you know, most likely with not enough holding, they're not going to do great. They're going to suffer. But it's another thing to just really value all the work that happens before and after 
and really prioritize it so that people are actually coming out of these experiences different. So that that's something I feel really, really hopeful for. I don't think psychedelics are going to, you know, quote, save the world like everybody thinks, not everybody, but a lot of people in that world think. But I do think that with a lot of intention, step by step, there is more healing, healing to be had. And when people become more loving and less traumatized, we slowly live in a better world. So I'm really hopeful for that. Yeah. Amen to that. We'll be back this fall with season four. And as always, you can support Back from the Abyss by sharing episodes, by posting on social media, and also writing us a review on whatever podcast platform you use. Thank you so much for listening.